Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I talk to today's trailblazers. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Victoria Atkins. Atkins is a minister in the Home Office, where her brief is crime, safeguarding and vulnerability, and she is also the Minister for Women. Since taking on the role, Atkins has played a lead role in the government's new domestic abuse bill and the offensive weapons bill. She recently became talk of the MP's tea room for reportedly reading the riot act to Boris Johnson for suggesting funds spent investigating historic child abuse amounted to spaffing money up the wall. Atkins has been described as a Tory rising star, was the first of her intake to be promoted to a ministerial role, and prior to entering Parliament she worked as a barrister. So, thank you very much for joining us today, Victoria. Thank you, Casey. I think you're also, from, just from on a podcast level, perhaps the busiest guest we've had on. Because <laughs> we have tried to record this podcast, I think, four times. And today you had another urgent question. Yes, yes. My, my daily urgent question, as we like to call it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so before we get to your current brief, there was much to talk about there. On this podcast, we like to start by going back, rewinding the hands of time to what you were doing before you were in politics. And I guess just starting on your early life, we had Jess Phillips on the podcast recently and she was talking about how she grew up in a very political household where she was sent on marches most weekends opposing nuclear weapons and it was a very socialist family. You had a slightly different scale of the political spectrum. Your father, Sir Robert Atkins, is a former Conservative MP and MEP and you said that John Major has known you since you were born. (laughs) So... Is it fair to say you grew up in a political household? Yes, I think that is fair. I have to thank the Conservative Party for me existing because my parents met at Conservative Party conference and so I'm very grateful to the party. But That's one of the happier, probably, Conservative Party conference romances. Yes, very much so. Every year, as when I, whenever I speak, I'm always saying to the young people there, who knows, you may have met Mr and Mrs Wright. <laughs> Yeah, all my not personal tales, obviously, but the things we hear are kind of the the more the drunken late night encounters. So I'm glad that there is a wholesome story coming from from what is often a bit of a booze fest. Did you talk about politics much in your household or were you as children left to come up with your own views? I mean, we did, you know, over the dinner table, I think in any family, if, um, you know, whether it's teaching or medicine or whatever, you, you talk about the family business, as it were. And of course, uh, I, I was sent out to canvas and deliver leaflets from the age of zero. I, my mum used to use the pram to balance the leaflets in as she was uh, going around delivering. And, um, and I was convinced uh, at the age of seven, uh, with Margaret Thatcher being prime minister at the time, I, I thought that's what women do. They become prime minister. So it seemed to me utterly um, normal to talk about politics and um, it's probably why I decided in my teenage years to just give it a break and, and not join the Conservative Association at university because I'd had enough politics for the time being. <laughs> and you never went through the rebellious teenage phase which I guess in that kind of environment would see you become a socialist, join the <laughs> Communist Party and really rebel to your parents. <laughs> I, I, didn't, I didn't go that far. We did have some pretty heated exchanges on, um, uh, I remember there was a road decision that uh, my father had made when he was transport minister and I felt quite angry about that because it had environmental impact as I saw it at the time so there was you know he they brought me up well to argue properly I hope (laughs) and then from there you went to university and studied law at Cambridge and at that point was your 
I guess, your vision or your ambition to become a, a lawyer or barrister as you went on to? Uh, very much so. I, I wanted to be a criminal barrister. I loved the criminal courts. I still do. I think uh, that we are so lucky to have the jewel of the justice system that we do in this country. And my, you know, some of my earliest memories, happiest memories, were sitting in the public gallery of the Old Bailey and watching how people made sure that guilty people were convicted and innocent people were acquitted. And then your experience of law in the years you were doing it, was it what you expected it to be? It was even more varied than I imagined. I mean, if you think the criminal justice system, whether it's youth courts, magistrates courts or the highest courts, crown courts, etc., you're dealing with some of the most your biggest problems facing society. So I did everything from robberies in youth courts through to, in my later years, prosecuting serious organised crime. And so it's, um, it, for me, it's been a really great grounding for politics because I've seen very much what harm can be done. And for me, I got to a stage where, you know, I was conscious that by the time I'd got involved, harm had been done. And I wanted to get in at an earlier stage of the process to try and stop that harm from happening. And then at what point did you think, this is a very fulfilling career, but... I want to try something different and I want to go into politics. Mm. Well, one of my first cases was I was sent to a youth court uh, in the southeast, and I just had a post-it note of the name of the young person I was looking at, looking after. And he was—I got to court. He was 12 years old. He had no grown-up with him, um, no mum, no dad, no carer, and he was in court for the first time. And I, I said to him, "You know, where's—is anyone coming to look after you, mum or dad?" And he said, um, I, "I've never known my dad, and my mum will be flat-out drunk on the floor by now." It was 9.30 in the morning and I thought at that point I want to be able to do something in later life to help boys like that and children like that. Fast forward 10-15 years, uh, David Cameron threw open the candidates list in the wake of the expenses scandal and um, my husband said to me, for goodness sake, stop shouting at the television whenever Gordon Brown comes on, you know, put your money where your mouth is, put yourself down. So I did and it, it was a, a lengthy process, it was a, you know, it was they. It was a long application process, but I was very lucky to be selected for the seat of Louthenhorn Castle, and I've absolutely loved being the Member of Parliament. Yeah, and but prior to that seat, you were, I mean, you ran to be Police and Crime Commissioner, mm. right, and thinking, and... I think narrowly missed out. Is that the right way to put it? Or was that kind? No, I, I mean, I, I, I did. Because I, I think the, the system of police and crime commissioners actually is a really good system and uh, they can make a real difference in their local communities. I think I won the first round, but because it wasn't first past the post, it went to the second round yep. and I lost to the independent. And then you were also lined up in 2010 for a different seat, but I think it was uh, also a safe seat. I was l- very lucky. I, I, I got interviewed in uh, a number of seats um, and lost to fabulous people like Claire Perry, Sajid Javid, uh, Joe Johnson. So, you know, all the great people. <laughs> They've all beaten me. Because <laughs> I was just wondering, because um, there's certain MPs who really pride themselves. So I think James Cleverley is one of them, Johnny Mercer to this day because of his current seat. And then Andrea Leadsom, when she was on this podcast, he really presences on you know fighting those no hope seats so there's almost like a certain faction the Tory party who think you have to do that to get your campaigning noose <laughs> and I was wondering what what you made of that because it seems that like you didn't have to go through the marginal seat route no I was think that a conscious decision I, I think running a police and crime commissioner election where you're fighting not one constituency but seven is quite good experience to be honest now since entering parliament you've been 
quite quickly promoted, but I guess initially just... 2015 and obviously surprise result Tory majority it was probably a from your perspective a happier environment than you first imagined in that campaign when I think everyone was very skeptical of the fact that David Cameron would get a majority what surprised you on entering parliament what didn't you expect to be the case then well that's a good question I think first of all that try as you might preparing for the fact that on the Thursday you've got polling day Friday morning, as in my case, because Louthan Hall Castle is such a rural seat, you, you have your result declared. And then Monday, you are straight into the House of Commons as the Member of Parliament. It's that speed of turnaround that I think most new MPs find quite surprising. What else have I found surprising? Uh, the, I mean, the labyrinth of the House of Commons surprises uh, uh, everyone. I uh, last week discovered a lift that I had no idea existed on my way up to the committee corridor. And it's, so you, you very much learn about the environment. But the environment, I think, in a way, the palace is such an important part of our experience as MPs because it's a constant reminder as to the huge privilege of being a Member of Parliament and also the history that precedes you and will carry on long after you've gone. Yeah, I still get lost to this day. I <laughs> share your points in the press gallery. And when we get to that promotion, so you were PPS to the leader of the House of Lords and then I think around the time that Pretty Patel left the cabinet things got shuffled around a bit and you were moved to your current brief in the home office and I think at the time it got quite a lot of press because you were the first of the 2015 intake to get to that point I think as everyone probably suspects or knows it's quite competitive politics (laughs) (laughs) would you say all your colleagues were delighted for you (laughs) in fairness actually they were they were all really lovely actually I mean I I was very lucky to be promoted and I particularly promoted into this role because it it really is my dream role um you know it's very much I very much about drawing on my experiences in the criminal courts and and looking at the causes of crime and so on so I actually everyone was really lovely and I got inundated with text messages and um lots of cups of tea and something stronger bought for me so they were very lovely the brief you currently have is very diverse and I mean the home office of a whole as as just seeing from the various urgent questions you have so much on your plate what in terms of your brief have you found I don't know perhaps the most rewarding part so far the most rewarding part but also the most difficult part is meeting the victims of crime because you know the the sorts of crimes that we're dealing with in the home office everything from knife crime through to child sexual exploitation to domestic abuse that the victims of those crimes and their families have the most extraordinary stories to tell and I think for me personally it's just really important to keep listening to people in that position because actually this is why we're here this is what we're doing this all for to try and help people so that to me is the most important part I was looking at the domestic abuse bill which uh, took a while to get to the point it did partly because of Brexit I think I remember doing a, a, oh. a radio program with you where you came on to talk about it I think it was um, Pienaar's politics oh, yes. and there's just so much Brexit happening that you just had to plead to just get two sentences out about the bill <laughs> and John was very good in fairness he, yes 
<laughs> is there a constant dilemma in, in this parliament yeah. with Brexit versus obviously domestic issues? Do you find it an uphill battle to get domestic issues movement on them? Oh. I mean, it is more. It is difficult. I think everybody acknowledges that. I, what was great, though, about the domestic abuse bill was the interest that there was actually in the media to talk about it because I think, you know, most, cracky, most journalists are responsible people with friends and families and, you know, they, they understand the, how they can help us communicate these really important public messages. So um, I was really struck, actually, at how responsible the huge majority of journalists and media outlets were on that. Yeah, um, and... Cause and we did, it, we, in fairness, you know, we did talk about it, didn't yeah, we, if you remember? Yeah, we, we did. We did. <laughs> and one of the things in that bill was the idea of financial abuse. Mm. Um, for listeners who perhaps aren't up to date yet with how that has changed, how does the domestic abuse bill basically stretch out to cover probably what people don't traditionally at least see as domestic abuse? Yeah, so what we want to do, we're we're reflecting in the bill, we've got a statutory definition that reflects the enormous range of abuse and the the types of abuse there are. So most people who haven't been affected by domestic abuse probably think about physical violence, but actually if you work with victims of domestic abuse, uh, you learn very, very quickly that it can take many different forms, everything from mental and emotional abuse to financial abuse. And this is, we've called quite deliberately financial abuse or sorry economic abuse sorry because we want to emphasize the point that this is about people's their access to economic powers such as being able to feed yourself being able to use the money you've earned to buy your own clothes making sure that your mobile phone you can access your mobile phone and not be cut off from your friends these are all examples that victims have given us of ways in which their partner sought to control them and cut them off from their friends and families. Now looking at some of the other issues that have come up in the past year which I think would fall into the you know your role as, as women's minister we have had upskirting and we've also recently had an FGM bill um, and in both of those instances there's also one of your colleagues who sometimes comes up Christopher Chope who <laughs> has a tendency to object on the reading and then basically pushes or at least tries to push things into long grass do you sometimes feel frustrated at the behavior of perhaps a colleague like Chope that they do these things and obviously all the headlines just say conservative MP blocks upskirting bill and just in case people don't know what upskirting is it's taking photos of someone's skirt so on the surface doesn't seem like the most obvious thing to block mm. yeah um yes it's incredibly frustrating and it uh, i don't quite know why christopher does it not least because he has lots and lots of private members bills himself that he seems very keen to get through um yeah, and the, the official reason he gives a scrutiny yeah it? yeah i mean i i find it incredibly frustrating particularly for all the campaigners who worked so hard on upskirting but also the campaigners who work on tackling fgm we just we want to get this legislation through and I think, you know, I, I believe in the private members' bill um, system. I think it's right that members of parliament should be able to put forward pieces of uh, legislation that they care deeply about. And we've had some great successes recently. I mean, Sarah Wollaston has worked um, to bring forward the stalking protection orders, which will really help victims of stalking from getting protection from those who are uh, acting in a criminal way. Um, so they can really work, uh, but it's incredibly frustrating when... Um, 
these sorts of headlines are, are coming up rather than the right headlines, which is we're doing something to stop this. And almost along those lines, I, I touched on it in the introduction, which was um, a story from my colleague, Isabel Hardman, which has been doing the rounds in the media. In the voting lobby last month, several of your colleagues reported that you used that time to confront Boris Johnson after he had made a comment that police budgets investigating historic sex abuse amounted to spaffing money up the wall. And one colleague said, you read him the riot act? I was just wondering, what what's your version of the event? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm, well, I'm very conscious that what goes on in the voting lobby normally stays in the voting lobby. So uh, all I can say is that I uh, uh, very much expressed my disappointment that he had used that word, particularly in the context of the subject matter. And I think it's a real shame, actually, because we're all understanding that the victims of child sexual exploitation may not be able to seek help, seek justice for many, many years, sometimes even decades after their traumatic experiences. And and I think we should be supporting them um, rather than making them feel as though they don't deserve to be listened to. And this is precisely, you know, one of the reasons why the PM set up the independent inquiry into child sexual abuse. To, to uncover this. And just at a time where there does seem to be a bit of a battle for the direction the Conservative Party should go in. I mean, you're often, I think, praised for having quite progressive politics, uh, a liberal conservative. I don't know if you would describe yourself as. Or... Well, I, I think I'd be happy with that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think the Conservative Party should stand for if we are going to start having that debate in a future you know, leadership contest with people like Boris Johnson standing? What do you think the Conservative Party should represent? I think we should represent modern Britain and our, the, toler- you know, the tolerance and the open arm approach to public life that the Conservatives have always had. Um, it's one of the reasons why we're the oldest and most successful political party in the world. You know, Brexit is really important, don't get me wrong, but Brexit will happen and it's going to pass. And when it passes, we need to have ideas for the future. And this is where this sort of one nation progressive conservatism, where we're, we're you know, no one is left behind. We're finding opportunities for people that perhaps don't exist at the moment. Um, it's that sort of approach that I will be very much looking for in any future leader. It was really interesting. This week we had the Knife Crime Summit at number 10 to, um, you know, to, find, to, talk, to talk about knife crime, but also find new ways of tackling it on top of all the work we're doing at the moment. And I had the pleasure of hosting the what I called the most uh, positive roundtable, um, which was about opportunities for young people. Because it seems to me, if it, you know, of course, we've got to focus on law enforcement and tackling the gang leaders and so on on this. But we've also got to make sure that we're able to offer something to the young people who are at the heart of this, who we're worried about, offer them opportunities for their future so that they're not steered onto a wrong path. And then just to round up this podcast on the in the final section, just a few thoughts on current issues. And one, <laughs> one is, I think you're quite rare in some sense for an MP because you don't have a social media account. Well, I do. I, I don't. Ha- I'm not on Twitter. Okay. I came yeah. off Twitter, but you I don't have a Twitter account. No, I'm off. In- I'm, on, I'm on Instagram, but off Twitter. Yeah, Instagram's a bit more calm, isn't yes. it? And but- it's much nicer. <laughs> It's just, you know, it's a friendlier place to hang um, out. Yeah, speaking about Twitter, you said that you basically got rid of your account because you were fed up with death threats and nastiness from people who often live many, many hundreds of miles away from mm. your constituency. Any regrets for not being on that? Or have you, do you have a calmer life, would you say? I have no regrets whatsoever. <laughs> Asking for a friend. <laughs> no regrets whatsoever. I think, you know, the, the point is... Uh, 
any I, I don't have to listen or participate in any of the Twitter storms that flare up and seem incredibly important in the five minutes of the Twitter storm and then flare down again. And frankly, if something important does happen, you know, Westminster is, is quite gossipy, to put it mildly. So chances <laughs> yeah, and are... And you still yeah. have WhatsApp. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, of course. Oh, God. I've got to have WhatsApp. I mean, you know, it's all the gossip amongst the MPs. That's how we do it. Just the only thing about the social media thing is obviously the the Conservative Party and the Labour Party have done some workshops about trying to help MPs, partly for welfare, but also because they see it as a new medium to reach out to younger voters and things. Do you feel like you're missing out on that at all by not having... A Twitter account. No, I mean we looked other, other ways. We looked quite carefully at who was. And yeah. But, but please don't. You know, I was not going to break the internet with my Twitter number <laughs> of Twitter followers. So, uh, of the few that were following me, um, when we looked at them, they were they were actually vast majority were other MPs and other politicos, other journalists. You know, uh, and a, a very very few members of the public and very few constituents actually. So we took the view that I wasn't. You know. I wasn't sure that the political world was going to um, not be able to cope having me on um, Twitter, so we came off it. And I don't regret it for a moment, I have to say. I really don't. And there's, you know, there are other ways of reaching out. And um, I think Instagram and um, podcasts like this, you know, it's all fantastic. And um, in the chamber today, I was watching it while I was waiting for you to <laughs> arrive. <laughs> and you were doing a UQ on the gender pay gap. But in one of the questions after, you talked about the current atmosphere mm. in Westminster and Parliament, which you think is putting women off what did you mean by that I think anyone at the moment looking at the political climate understands it's not terribly comfortable and it's not very friendly it's not very um it's not the sort of normal working environment that the vast majority of people are used to working in and um we have got to make sure that in all our conversations with each other that we're treating people with respect and with kindness actually and um, that we're, we're you know there's more give and take than perhaps there's been thus far. Now one of the criticisms of Theresa May is that she's not that clubbable because she doesn't often go to bars and socialise in that sense. Do you think that you need to stay late in Westminster to be clubbable? Oh gosh well look, I'm a working mum so actually, I you know I don't stay late and sit in bars. I, but I also make huge efforts to meet colleagues, to listen to their concerns in and amongst the working day. So, I, and I think that way you can you, you can make sure that you're accessible and people can get to know you. But you don't always have to stay late. Yeah. On motherhood, I was wondering how you balance it with your duties. Well, another 2015 intaker, father, and Tom Tegenhart, has said that he does the Today programme while changing nappies. <laughs> Do you have such skill levels? Or <laughs> It was easier when Monty was uh, younger. But uh, no, I mean, I did the media round a couple of weeks ago. I did a media round in Millbank, uh, which is where you all the studios, for those who um, aren't familiar with Millbank, it's that all the different media companies have got studios in one building. And because uh, I had I wasn't able to sort out childcare because it had come up very quickly. Monty was following me around in a, you know in all the studios and reading his horrible histories book as he was um, sitting there very nonchalantly in television studios watching me do my um, do my thing. So he's very he's very cool with that. He he thinks that's what every mum does. And then last two is um, worst advice you've ever been given. <laughs> So I, oh, let's think about this. This is very good. Do you know, I actually was, when I was a, a young barrister, I had an older, much older male barrister. 
say to me that I shouldn't show any weakness or vulnerability or any sense of how difficult the criminal bar was as a woman to others because that would just undermine my reputation and I I mean I didn't quite know what he meant by it at the time but it stayed with me and I thought actually on reflection he was expecting me to pretend that I wasn't a woman working in what was still a male-dominated profession and that I should you know be as tough as the men and and um, so on and I think I nowadays I can't imagine anyone would give that advice because you we all have our own skills and weaknesses and so on and I think actually being yourself is the most important probably very cliched but the most important thing you can be finally there's been some reports in the papers with leadership speculation rife that there are several colleagues and I think some in the cabinet who have said (laughs) and I, I paraphrase here that they don't need to worry about having a woman leader next time because they've done it twice um, I well no. do you think that's a good way of looking at things I, I can't imagine any colleague has actually said that but if they had said it they have not said it in my presence and, and probably wisely yes thanks Victoria <laughs> thanks so much and if you like this podcast why not subscribe you can find all the episodes if you just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash balls and that will also lead you to the iTunes store where if you really like it you could leave a review and they include interviews with Andrea Ledsom Emma Barnett and Sarah Baxter of the Sunday Times and we also have an offer you may have heard of if you've ever listened to a Spectator podcast before and that is 12 issues for £12 along with a £20 John Lewis voucher, which is also valid in the supermarket Waitrose. Uh, Just go to www.spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.